Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken. And this is Crime and Stuff. The, the podcast. That... You would do if you had nothing better to do. Yeah. And before we do anything, just real quick, there's no wrong answer to this question. I'm going to ask you something. And without even thinking, okay. I want you to answer yes or no. All right. Okay. Do you know who Wayne Rooney is? No. Okay, good. That makes my point. I was watching a British documentary about a defamation suit. Do you know what a wag is? A, like a person? No. Oh, and okay. in Britain, and like I guess we're all, we're all supposed to know this, it's wives and girlfriends of the soccer stars, right? Oh, I did not know that. And okay. so one suit, another. I don't want to get into the whole big thing. But, you know, I love, I love, I love, I love our friends across the ocean. Yes. And they're and very good listeners. They are. But I do think sometimes England particularly thinks it's the center of the universe. So oh, I'm yeah. Not, like America this, doesn't. Okay. Well, anyway, well, I, go on. Go on. Well, I'm watching this. And first of all, I had to look up what WAG is because they just assume, you know, and it's a whole thing over there. But hmm. Wayne Rooney was this big soccer star. Okay. And, or as they call it over there, football. Then he, he coached like Manchester United or one of the big teams. And he actually coached DC United here in the United States for a year or two. But on that, at least one person refers to him as the most famous person in the world, the most famous man in the world. And I'm like, in England, maybe, but definitely not the most famous man in the world. Yeah. And then they're like, the world is riveted on this defamation suit, you know, between the two wags. And I'm like, I'd never heard of it until I watched this documentary, which was entertaining because I didn't have to care. It's nice to watch a documentary where you don't have to yes. care. So I said, well, I'm going to test to see if he's the most famous man in the world because you're a well-read person who knows a lot of things mm. and is very tuned into many aspects of society. For instance, I wouldn't ask mom or dad if they knew who Wayne Rooney was. <laughs> you know, maybe dad would weirdly pull it out of his ass somehow. Sometimes he knows, yes. But, weird yeah. stuff. And then the other thing, just very quickly, I want to bring up is I was listening to a podcast and you know how cops are always like, oh, I can tell when someone's lying. I have a bill in, you know, and that's basically confirmation bias. So somebody did a study using psychology students and. Oh, yeah, because you made me look, it was on hidden, hidden brain. It was something called. Did I really do that? Right. Or it was about right? how yeah. people can make false confessions. Yes. They had criminals tell their real crime and also tell a fake crime they did and had the psychology students and the cops guess or determine when they were lying and when they weren't. Both groups got it like 50-50, but the psychology students actually did a little better than the cops. And they made the point on this episode of Hidden Brain that with cops, it's a two-pronged issue of them being absolutely sure they're right Yep. And then having confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking of that while I was watching documentary. I can't remember which one now about, you know, the wrong person. You know, when they immediately start using the read technique on somebody yeah. when the dead person hasn't been dead for even 24 hours. And I was listening to Laura Richard, an older episode of hers. It was near the end of her series about the Yorkshire R word. <laughs> and she was talking about one of the cops and that other things he had done and two of them were wrongfully convicted 
convicted people because of confessions. Right. One of the confessors was a developmentally disabled guy. Mm-hmm. He had the, the thought processes of a 12-year-old. He didn't have anyone with him. DNA evidence, you know, exonerated many years later. You have to put aside your hubris. But in a lot of cases, like for instance, in this very good book, speaking of Laura, that I'm reading now, Trailed by Catherine Miles, Ooh. that Laura just- Oh, yes, about. yes, yes. And, and, and they, they were talk, in our episode 36. Right. And cops don't even realize they have the confirmation bias. So far, they found like 80% of overturned wrongful convictions, there's confirmation bias involved, yeah. which I mean, because yeah. that's the- that's the That's thing the that problem. leads to the other you stuff. Focus and focus on somebody. Then you read read technique the shit out of somebody. Tell Can't them be- to tell you the truth. And then when they tell you the truth, you tell them that you know they're lying and how people don't know that police can lie to you. They can yes. lie to you about what evidence they have. They can Yes. And there was something I wanted to talk about okay. that has nothing to do with any of this. Okay. It was just something right before I came on that annoyed me. Okay. So my daughter loves to listen to 90s music. I don't oh, I didn't even like 90s music. Grunge. Well, she likes grunge and stuff. She likes oh, yeah. Nirvana. She just bought a CD by Hole, which is the band court. It could be worse. No, it doesn't bother me. Yeah. No, believe me, there are worse ones. And, yes. I, and she listens to those yeah. too. She likes death metal and stuff like uh, that. Bleh. And I told her I like that song that they did called Doll Parts. And I said, that's my favorite one. It's the song where they sing, I want to be the girl with the most cake. Oh yeah. And I was right. just reading somewhere where someone said, what does that mean? And I'm like, it, I don't know, but I totally obvious. understood what it right. meant. I, I, I listened now to I want a, cake. I listened to it on YouTube. And of course the comments were all like, well, Kurt obviously wrote that. And Kurt wrote most oh, of Jesus. her songs. And, Kurt, uh-huh. and it's like, you know what? First of all, when she first wrote it, she had just started dating him or even maybe not, I don't even know if it was, but why is it every friggin' time any woman who's involved with a guy does anything, people have to give him the credit that's, for it. That's why I'm single, because when the universe finally embraces my genius. I'll say it was AI. Then. I want it to be all about me, right? Like, oh, she knew how to use yeah. AI. And, and as far as me saying anything about your daughter's musical taste, when I was her age, I was listening to Bobby Sherman. So until oh, yeah. until Liz turned me on to um, Dylan when I was 12. One Bobby to another but, Bobby. Right. After she, quote unquote, accidentally melted the Bobby Sherman record on top Aww. of the lamp. Billy and a- Jimmy broke in half a Barry Manilow album that I had borrowed from Liz Ballard. I didn't actually borrow it. She left it at our house because I didn't really like Barry Manilow. No. The <laughs> other thing we wanted to talk about was the two missing... Oh, right. The and they kind of reminds me of my um, last... It uh, made me think of your last thing. So there were these two women, uh, developmentally disabled. They live in Topsom, Maine. And several days ago, got in a car to drive to the Maine Mall, which is half an hour down Interstate 95, yeah, 295. Like 30 miles A straight at the shot most. on Interstate 295. And they haven't been able to find their way home and have gone on a tour of at least three or four New England. Their names are Kimberly Pouchard. She's 51. And Angela Bussell, who's 50. 
They've been in Massachusetts, New Hampshire. The last time they were spotted was in Springfield, Maine, which is up. Way up north. If you're going some... pro flights from Old Town to Holton, Arusa. it's like in the in between right. there. And she was asking the woman how to get back on 95. They and their phones video. are now dead. So this has been going on for at least five days, right? They were reported missing on Wednesday. And today's so Saturday. I don't know when they left on their trip. Let's hope they make it home. Eight hours ago, and... one of their mothers said, I just want my baby girl back. Aww. So she's probably about my, our mom's right. age. But we were saying maybe they just told people they were going to the mall when they really said, let's just drive all over the place and not stop. That's what I do. But, but well, I feel bad. Well, and I they noticed... must have driven by home. Well, maybe they didn't drive by Topsom and that's how they ended up in Northern Maine because they probably took the turnpike instead yeah. of 295 when they were going they back did. up home. Yeah. I think that's what they did and they totally bypassed that area. So I noticed my stop in, you know, convenience store to get my Diet Coke mm-hmm. every morning. So all the stores that sell lottery tickets have that screen and the, there's always missing people. And one of the, the, the woman's picture was on there. So if the thing is, all, everyone at convenience stores that sell lottery tickets are probably aware. They're stopping places to buy gas and stuff. Mm-hmm. I hope they didn't like run out of gas somewhere on some side I know, it's road. it's cold out. I mean, everyone is talking about because they keep just like bypassing, like they ended up in Massachusetts and then they were in New Hampshire. They've been all over. They've been everywhere. It's not hard to go from Topsom to the main mall. There's one highway in Maine. Well, the problem is 295 takes that jug handle. when they, when they went down to the mall, they must have gone by and just kept going. No, you know what they probably did? You know, in Falmouth, you get right, on. And they got on 95. And yeah, so they, they ended up. Turnpike. Right. And then coming back, they didn't get off the turnpike to get on 295. They kept going on the turnpike. So you go to Lewiston instead of going to Topsom. And which, apparently they they didn't have GPS on their phone. Well, if they did, they, they don't know how to... You Clearly know. they don't. Either right. that or that it's intentional, which I don't think it is. I don't think it is. I just think they're it just but it's so, anyway. It's so frustrating because it's just one of those things where in this day and age mm-hmm. you would think Well, they are developmentally disabled. I know, but you think somebody would it's just like when that plane disappeared, it's like I can't believe a plane, you know, the one that well, I can't I think of right, the, the Indonesian, right. Yeah. You think I can't believe something could possibly disappear. Yeah, in this although the ocean's age, a big but it can place. things can. But the other problem is like 20 years ago, everybody used to read the paper. Everybody used uh-huh. to watch TV, and now mm-hmm. people just don't. I know. You know, so stuff happens and people aren't aware of stuff happening. Yeah. They're not aware of these women being lost because they don't read the paper and they don't watch channel six news or whatever. And but anyway, don't you have an update? Yes. On which episode? which episode? Oh, gee. Our favorite updated episode that we'll be updating forever at mm-hmm. this point. Episode 29, mm-hmm. I believe. Wicked Bad Medicine about the lab in Boston. Annie... Wicked Bad Chemistry. Oh, Wicked Bad Chemistry. That's right. It was mainly by Annie Dukin, who was the uh, chemist that was messing around with her drug test, making them positive when they might not have been and a lot of people got convicted based on her and then we also briefly talked about Sonia Farrakh who was in western Massachusetts that just took the drugs because they were there I don't know um (laughs) you have to listen to the episode to know the whole backstory and there are many many updates but the most recent one was 
end of January, beginning of February, five guys who were convicted on drug charges or drug related charges are suing the state or the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and the drug lab and all this stuff. They're suing a whole shitload of people because not only were they convicted, but as their lawyer, Luke Ryan, doesn't mm. Luke Ryan, that name sounds like the name of like a soap opera person or something. It anyway, sounds like a lot of people's names. He said they were victimized twice. One of his things he said was, first, they were the victims of wrongful prosecutions based on tainted drug evidence. Then in connection with those very same drug cases, they had been victimized by an unfair civil forfeiture system. And the civil forfeiture system, it means like if you're convicted, you can lose anything. Like a lot of people, they had cash on them when they were arrested. It, it was taken from them. Their cars were taken. Their homes can be taken. So these five guys, three of them were from the results of the Western Massachusetts lab where Sonia Farrick was doing her thing. And two were from the Boston area where Annie Dukin was. And they're suing the state for millions of dollars. And so in the process of the discovery, the second update I have, it was discovered that even though at the time, you know, they depicted Annie, which we talked about this in some of the updates. And I think even in the episode, they depicted Annie Dukin as a sole bad actor. And Sonia Farrakh, as in her lab, was the only one doing it. Well, apparently, even way back when this happened, which was, you know, 2014, they did a study that they knew, uh, Martha Coakley and some other people, all the other people that are being sued, knew that there were more people than just Annie Dukin doing this shit. So there were uh, several other workers, lab workers, that had been found to be falsifying results. So that's opened a whole new can of worms now. And so we're going to be mm -hmm. doing updates forever. Yeah. But I wanted to say also, we have talked about this before. I don't think Annie Dukin could have gotten away with what she did if there wasn't an atmosphere of allowing that type of thing yes. or people looking the other way and yes. knowing in the back of their minds that shit like that was going on. Right, and because also, the cops are happy to have their conviction numbers go way up. But also, if we didn't have all these drug laws, then there wouldn't be any right. reason. When people talk about bail reform, and I didn't even really realize this till I watched the documentary about this, how to fix a drug scandal. A lot of these people, because they're not wealthy and can't afford bail, are in jail. Yes. And they're so they're not working. Their yeah. lives are falling apart. So they plead guilty, even though they're not, just so they can get out of jail. And they're told, you know, oh, it's a misdemeanor, blah, blah, blah. But their lives are basically ruined. And they pleaded guilty without going through the justice system because they couldn't afford to be in jail. So when people talk about bail reform, it's not, oh, letting murderers out on the street. It's these non-violent crimes that affect poor people. It ruins the lives of poor people. And that was one of the things that I was going to say is the lawyers who are representing the five plaintiffs, there's other lawyers too that are going to be suing, I'm sure. The prosecutors would make it a condition of probation that they would accept these forfeiture terms or they couldn't get probation. So that kind of forced them, like you were saying, it forced them right. to give up stuff. Even, whether they were right. innocent or guilty didn't matter. They just right. didn't want to get out of jail. It's a brutal system if and you're it, poor. And it's ridiculous. And and I think a lot of people who are, who are like, well, I'm not a criminal and stuff, 
don't understand they figure okay if somebody's in jail even if they can't afford bail they deserve to be there and then they go through the justice system and everything's fine well it's not you lose a lot and you may not be guilty or if you're guilty you're guilty of some tiny bullshit thing you shouldn't be in jail for but the other thing is too that when you get out of jail or prison you have to pay all these fees and shit hundreds of thousands of dollars and you know a lot of it you have to pay court costs you have to pay a lot of stuff I just think that the whole drugs, the police, and all the stuff that's been going on recently, well, Well, Nixon, it started in Nixon because he needed something to distract people from the war. So he, it's our own war on drugs. Him and Reagan, you can blame, you know, and there are drugs that are bad and stuff. But it's funny, opioid epidemic started with doctors not drug cartels, not poor people from El Salvador coming over the border to have a better life. It started with white male American doctors prescribing, over-prescribing for people to make money and rip off insurance companies. I had my C-section, and I'm not saying that it's not a painful procedure for for some women, because I'm sure it is. But for me, it was not, I was not, I honestly was not in that much pain. And they kept coming into my room and I was already on drugs drip trying to keep my blood pressure down right so I wouldn't have a stroke and so I was already like kind of out I didn't feel good from taking all these drugs and I was not in that much pain and they kept wanting me to take Vicodin and Mm, I was like I don't need it I don't want it I don't need it and they're like oh don't let the pain get away from you you know don't be brave if you need it they were very pushy about it and finally I agreed to take some Tylenol because they would not but my pain level was not high and I honestly didn't need it I had foot surgery and this was maybe 15 years ago for just a nerve a little if you run and stuff, people get these. It's, it's called a Morton's neuroma. It's like a, a little cyst or tumor on the nerve between your toes, and they take it out. It's not malignant or anything. It's just they gave me prescription for Vicodin, and I said, I don't want this. I'm I'm not going to get it filled. I don't need it. And they were like that, too. Well, you better get it filled. You, you never know. You better get it filled. And it was not that painful at all. And I took Tylenol or something, yeah. and it didn't bother me. And I had that Vicodin. It was in my medicine cabinet when I lived in New Hampshire. And remember, one day I took it out and it felt lighter. And either those people mm-hmm. who were watching sitter. the dog, the dog sitter who left Dewey trapped. That's why I'm Dewey was, sure was vicious. Him. And I don't even want to get it. It breaks my heart just to remember that about Dewey and him. Oh, should, we, should, I, should I just start? Yes. On a whole different topic here. Ooh. If you listened to episode 133... You'll remember we got a lot of our information about the double murder of Deswendy and Stephen Reed from an affidavit written by a Burlington, Vermont police officer. He got a lot of his information from one written by the Concord, New Hampshire Police Department. But at the time, the New Hampshire affidavit hadn't been made public. And we speculated that a lot of our questions could be answered if only that affidavit would be made public. Well, on January 30th, the affidavit was made public. And it did answer a lot of questions as well as have a lot of good details. So this is kind of an update episode 
about the arrest of Logan Clegg, who is charged with the double homicide of Wendy and Stephen Reed in Concord, New Hampshire on April 18th, 2022. What episode number was that? That was episode 133, as I said at the beginning. <laughs> I'm sorry. I think. If you haven't listened to episode 133, you may want to. This is linear, but there are major things I'm leaving out because I'm not going to rehash the whole thing. The stuff I talk about, I'll remind people so there's a context to it, but it's not a full look at the entire case. You know, people can do what they want, but if you want the full picture, listen to episode 133. Almost all of my information today is from an affidavit filed in support of the arrest of Logan Clegg for the April 18th, 2022 shooting deaths of Steve and Deswendy Reed in Concord, New Hampshire. Clegg was initially arrested on a warrant out of Utah fugitive warrant by Vermont police, while New Hampshire police tied up the final strings they needed to arrest him on the second-degree murder charges. So that's what the Vermont affidavit, which was 10 pages long, was for. The New Hampshire affidavit by Detective Danica Gorham of the Concord Police Department is 25 pages, and that supported Clegg's arrest on eight charges of second-degree murder and gun possession. A quick refresher, Stephen and Wendy Reed, ages 67 and 66, were reported missing on April 20th, 2022, after friends and family couldn't get in touch with them. They'd gone on a hike about 2.30 in the afternoon on the Broken Ground Trail system near their apartment at the Alton Woods Complex in Concord, New Hampshire. Their bodies were found about 50 yards off the trail on April 21st. Both had been shot multiple times, and they'd been dragged off the trail. Logan Clegg was arrested on a Utah Fugitive from Justice warrant October 12th in South Burlington, Vermont. The arrest came after the New Hampshire investigation and was necessary to get him in custody. He had a one-way ticket for flight to Berlin, Germany. I can never say Berlin. Berlin. I always want to say Berlin like they do in New Hampshire. Out of JFK Airport in New York the next day. The New Hampshire arrest warrant on murder charges was signed October 18th. Clegg was arrested and waived extradition, so was brought back to New Hampshire. And that's kind of where we were when I did that episode in early December. He was a Merrimack County District Court in Concord, New Hampshire, on January 30th to be arraigned on eight charges, two counts of second-degree murder for knowingly causing the death of each of the Reeds, two alternative second-degree murder charges for recklessly causing their deaths, three counts of falsifying physical evidence, one count of being a convicted felon in possession of a firearm. Mm. His indictment on those charges was announced January 19th. At his arraignment January 30th, the state filed a motion asking Judge John Kissinger to unseal the affidavit. Clegg's attorney, Caroline Smith, opposed the motion, saying that the affidavit was a tool to get him arrested, but it is not a necessary part of the case going forward. And that's a simplification of what she said. I won't get into it. I covered it for my friend Carol's Manchester Inklink news outlet. Kissinger, the judge, disagreed and unsealed the affidavit later that day. My guess on the legal back and forth is that Clegg's attorney rightly believes that the affidavit basically makes him look guilty. People will read it as fact and it will be hard to get an impartial jury in New Hampshire. My guess is the state feels that way too and is hoping it will force a plea bargain, but that's just my speculation. I am not a lawyer. Clegg's trial was set for July 11th at the hearing. Meanwhile, he's being held without bail in Merrimack County Jail in Concord, New Hampshire. I'm going to go through the new information in a linear way so it'll make sense and be easier to follow. 
and of course, as we go, I'll point out corrected information that was either wrong in the other one or confused us. Um, and I got wrong. Okay. When I say us, I mean me, and I got wrong in our episode. First of all, we didn't know the details of the first calls to the police that the Reeds were missing or what happened in the hours after those calls. So Susan Foray, Stephen Reed's sister, called the Concord Police Department at 6.20 p.m. on Wednesday, April 20th to report the couple missing. She said Stephen had missed a tennis match with his brother that morning, which was out of character for him. And I think it was reported in papers and by us, therefore, that the tennis match was April 19th, the day before, and with a friend, not his brother, because yeah. they weren't giving out a lot of information. Family members tried to contact Stephen Wendy by cell phone, but got no response. Some family members went to their apartment, but there were no signs of them and nothing looked amiss. Susan said the last contact anyone had was by text message with Steve the morning of Monday, April 18th, and everything was fine. She told police the couple had no known mental health issues, physical health issues, financial problems, or a history of violence. Everything was fine with them. Officers Matthew Schleidel and Christiane DeSilvio went to the apartment that night and conducted what's called a consent search. That means they're allowed to search without a warrant by consent of apparently his family members can consent. They found the apartment neat and organized. And they found two cell phones, which they assumed at the moment to be Steve and Wendy's, which is important later. And they found their passports, so they hadn't taken off. Wendy was originally from Burkina Faso in Africa, and they were world travelers. Steve had worked in Africa for many years. So, you know, it's conceivable, oh, they could have gone somewhere, but their passports were there. There was no sign of forced entry or disturbance, and their vehicles were in the parking lot with nothing suspicious about hmm. them, untouched. That night, the Concord police got New Hampshire State Police involved, and they started searching the area around the apartment complex. This is one of those large multi-building complexes that has several buildings and about 400 apartments. It's on Loudon Road in northeast Concord, and while it's one of those strips with everything from apartment complexes to fast food restaurants to state offices and more, it's also on the edge of the woods. Concord is New Hampshire's capital, but it's a city of only 44,000, and like all of northern New England, once you're outside the city limits, you are either in the woods or farmland or mountains. It's not an urban area. While searching the woods near the apartment complex that night, police first made contact with probably, we can definitely say, Logan Clegg, who yeah. called himself Arthur Kelly. Mm. Now, the Vermont affidavit made this very confusing, and this affidavit clears up a lot of this. At about 9.30 p.m., so three hours after the reeds were reported missing, in the woods near the apartment complex, and this was not in the broken ground trail system, a short walk away from the complex where a lot of the action takes place, this was in woods practically on the grounds of the apartment complex. Ah. And that definitely wasn't clear before. In those woods around the apartment complex, the two officers, Officer DeSilvio, who was now with Detective Garrett Lemoyne, crossed paths with a white male, 20 to 30 years old, clean-shaven with brown hair. He said his name was Arthur Kelly, and his date of birth was January 27, 1992. By the way, Clegg's is January 24, 1996, in case you're wondering. Mm. The man was in a small tent in the woods, about a half a mile from the broken ground trail system, where the Reed's bodies would later be found. DeSilvia called in his name and date of birth to the police department dispatch, but no matching records were found. Lemoyne, the other detective, told the man that they were searching for a missing couple. 
The man responded that he was just camping for the night and was from the Boston area and hadn't seen anyone. So De Silvia asked dispatch to check his name and date of birth with Massachusetts, but no record was found there either. The man said he'd left his tent earlier that morning and hadn't returned until the afternoon and that he hadn't seen anyone in the area. He also told the two officers he didn't want to talk with them anymore. Mm. He wasn't doing anything wrong and he was only passing through the area. Lemoyne asked him if he'd given them his correct name and date of birth and he said he had. Lemoyne noted at the time that there were many Mountain Dew Code Red soda, <laughs> soda cans on the ground in and around the tents and in a shopping bag. And as we know from episode 133, Garrett Lemoyne noticing these Mountain Dew soda cans turns out to be the key that breaks this case open. Mm-hmm. Although not right away. De Sylvia and Lemoyne left Arthur Kelly in his tent to continue their search for the Reeds. The search by the two police officers other Concord police officers and New Hampshire State Police found no sign of the couple that night. At 11.57 p.m., almost six hours after the family first reported them missing, Wendy and Steve's names were entered into the FBI's National Crime Information Center, commonly known as NCIC, as endangered missing persons. And I'll give the police credit for this. They were on it right away. This was none of that futzing around. Maybe they wanted to leave. Yeah, there's no law against people taking off, blah, blah, blah. I mean, they took it seriously from the word go. The next morning, Concord and State Police resumed the search, including an intensive search of the apartment and Central New Hampshire Special Operations Unit, basically the SWAT team for the State Police, canvassed the apartment complex and did line searches in the woods. They also had sniffer dogs and bike units radiating out searching the neighborhood. That afternoon, the Concord Police Department and New Hampshire State Police issued a press release asking for the public's help and asking anyone with information, contact Concord Police or the Concord Regional Crime Line. The story was carried in local papers and on TV, along with the photo of Stephen Wendy that we've become familiar with. It was around this time that detectives made a crucial discovery. Neither of the cell phones in the apartment belonged to Steve, so he likely had his with him. Detective Alex Harbitz submitted an exigency request to Google for location information related to Reed's Google account. Just so people know, Google collects location data from cell phone users who use Google software. They know where you are at all times. If there was somebody else that might have been on one of the datelines I recently saw where they did a Google Yeah, it's becoming a thing, right. But you have to ask Google, like they had to contact Google and get the data. At 5.10 p.m. that night, so this is Thursday, April 21st, the night after they were reported missing, police got the Google data that showed Reed's last phone location on April 18th, the day the couple disappeared. The data showed the phone left the Altonwoods apartment complex at approximately 2.42 p.m. and entered the Marsh Loop Trail at Broken Ground Trails at 2.48 p.m. The last GPS coordinates shown for the phone were at 3.47 p.m. April 18th on a wooded area off the trail and the broken ground trail system. And just to be clear, the woods the police have been searching until then were just woods around the apartment complex. The broken ground trail system, well, obviously a six-minute walk from the apartment complex for Steve and Wendy, is on the other side of Interstate 393. You go under the interstate, you go down a road, and then you're in this trail system that's just north of the city with several miles of 
loop trails and stuff. But they weren't searching over there until this happened. They were searching in the woods around Loudon Road. So at 5.55 p.m. April 21st, Conquer police detectives, as well as police sniffer dogs, went to search in the broken ground trail system using the coordinates they got from Google. At 6.14 p.m., one of the dogs, and they don't say what his or her name is. Did they say what breed? No. I'm going to guess German Shepherd or one of those breeds that looks like a German Shepherd, but I don't know. But the dog took an interest in a pile of leaves and sticks about 11 meters from the GPS location. And 11 meters, I always think of a meter about the same as a yard. So it was pretty close. The dog's trooper checked it out and saw the top of what looked like a human head and black skin tone and hair, which would be Wendy. There were no signs of movement or life, and it was obvious that the person covered by the leaves and twigs was, quote, deceased, indicating foul play, unquote. The police established a crime scene and soon found Steve's body, too, in the same spot. There were no obvious signs of blood right there, nor drag marks or signs of a struggle. The affidavit points out there was also no notable smell of death. I'll add for those not familiar with northern New England, even though it was April, it's still relatively cold in New Hampshire. and We know it takes longer for bodies to decompose when it's cold out. I looked up the weather for those three days and the highs were 54 Fahrenheit the day they disappeared. 50 on Tuesday and Wednesday, and 57 on Thursday, the day they were found. The overnight lows were 32 the first night, so freezing, 41, and then 37. Mm. And as I said, that's Fahrenheit, so it's still pretty chilly. So they were kind of refrigerated. Yeah, a little bit. Concord Police Detective Nicole Murray and New Hampshire State Police Trooper Tara Ellsmiller processed the scene. The Reed's bodies were in a natural depression rather than a dug grave, hidden under several inches of leaves, sticks, and other woodland debris. And it was downhill from the trail. Police speculated that the killer covered the bodies and altered the scene. Quote, It was considered unlikely that the victims would have been quickly discovered without the Google coordinates and K-9 units, the affidavit yeah, of course, said. course, the doggies. Right. And as I said, no shit. The dogs should get more credit. Because they're such good dogs. They do their job. They're good doggies. Stephen Reed's phone was not with the bodies. And though they used an electronic sniffer dog at the scene, they didn't find it. Oh, a dog. I thought. (laughs) uh, uh, Yeah. A dog that sniffs out electronics. Yeah. Because as you know, the sniffer dogs are all trained to sniff. Yes. They're very specialized. Yes. Assistant medical examiner Ginger Chapman at the scene conducted an initial limited examination of the bodies. And, quote, she advised that there was an apparent gunshot wound to each body. And I just said that, quote, because I hate the way they use advised instead of said or told. Because it's never, ever advice. It's never advice. And they used it constantly. And it just drives me crazy. They like anytime they can use a more complex word. I know they do. I know. Well, I heard a reporter use it either on TV or I read it in the paper. I can't even remember now, like not quoting anyone. And I'm like, don't use advised when you mean told or said, because advised is giving somebody advice. No shit. Anyway, Dr. Chapman also said that the victim's clothing was bunched up in certain areas consistent with having been dragged. The bodies were taken to the medical examiner's office. It's been reported, and we had in our mini last year, and when we first did something on this in episode 133 in December, that the Reeds died of multiple gunshot wounds. But that was all the police hadn't given out any details at all. 
but here they are. Ooh. Deputy Chief Medical Examiner Dr. Mitchell Weinberg found that Stephen Reed was shot four times in his left wrist, left shoulder and head, left arm and chest, and central back. Two of the bullets entered, exited, then re-entered his body. Weinberg oh. concluded that more than one of the shots would have, quote, posed a near-immediate threat to Stephen's life, unquote. Oh. Wendy Reed was shot twice in her right ear and head and right ear and neck. Weinberg concluded that the shot that entered her head caused a fatal brain injury. And just from the way they said that, I mean, I'm not seeing it. I'm not a doctor and I don't know stuff, but it almost sounds like she was on the ground when she was shot. If she was shot in her oh, right yeah. ear and it went into her I head wonder. and her right in her right ear and it went into her neck. I know. It would be both had abrasions to their torsos indicative of being dragged. Weinberg recovered multiple small bullet fragments and estimated that the bullets were smaller caliber, possibly in the 380 to 9 millimeter range. Okay. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Meanwhile, at the scene on April 22nd, the day after the bodies were found with assistance from a ballistic sniffer dog, Ooh. whose name they don't give, detectives discovered apparent bullet fragments and coagulated blood on Marsh Loop Trail about 80 feet from where they found the bodies. They also found ripped fabric on a log, which appeared to match Wendy's pants. Hmm. From the evidence they found, investigators believe that the two were shot on Marsh Loop Trail and dragged downhill to where their bodies were found. Now, one of the main confusions of episode 133, with lots of unanswered questions, was about the campsite or campsites in the woods. Yes. As yes. you know, there was reference to a campsite, and there was also reference to a burnt, with a T, which drives me crazy, campsite. Mm -hmm. And it made it sound like the two might have been the same thing, and we couldn't, and we had a lot of questions, so yes. it was very confusing. Well, now we're going to clear that up. Oh. On the afternoon of April 22nd, Detectives Garrett Lemoyne and Matt Doyen returned to the campsite where Lemoyne and DeSilvia had run into Arthur Kelly two days before. Now, remember, because I know it gets confusing, they were looking for the Reeds when they ran into this Arthur Kelly, but they hadn't found the bodies yet. Yes. So Lemoyne and DeSilvia were suspicious of Arthur Kelly because he had obviously given them a false name. And so he was on their radar. So and when, I know I asked before, but I guess it's okay just to camp wherever it's, you it's want. Not, it's not really, but they were looking for missing people. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, yeah. that'll come up. That'll come up and we can talk about it. When okay. Lemoyne and Doyen on April 22nd got to the site where Lemoyne and DeSilvia had run into Arthur Kelly, the tent was gone, as were the Mountain Dew cans. There was no debris left behind, nothing. There was no sign that anyone had been there which is unlike what they usually saw at abandoned homeless campsites. Well, that was nice. At least he cleaned up. Cleaned up. But there was a second campsite. Uh. A man who frequently walked in the woods had been keeping an eye on it since January, as we discussed in episode 133, and we'll discuss a little more in a few minutes in this. The campsite, the famous burnt campsite, <laughs> was found abandoned and burned after the Reed's bodies were found. At first, investigators didn't believe it was related to the case, as we talked about in episode 133, but they later found bullet fragments, Mountain Dew cans, and other evidence that they believe shows it was used by Clegg. So it's likely this was his main campsite. After he allegedly killed the Reeds, he abandoned it for a new one, where Lemoyne and De Silvia came upon him the night of April 20th. Sense. 
And there's more on this later, but just now so people can process it. But in any case, even though the site where Lemoyne had encountered the guy calling himself Arthur Kelly was barren now, those Mountain Dew code red cans stayed in Lemoyne's head. Mm-hmm. That day, on April 22nd, Lemoyne and Doyen began a canvas of local stores that sold Mountain Dew code red. At Walmart, with help from the Asset Protection Associates, which, as we know, are the shoplifting police. They found yeah. video sh- footage of a white man buying the soda at 2.40 p.m. April 20th, seven hours before the comps and Arthur Kelly met each other. It's this lucky set- he drank something a little bit un- out of the ordinary. I know, of it a is. Diet Coke. And it's a good thing it struck the cop yes. as something to follow up on. Yeah. As we know, them finding that video footage of him buying the Mountain Dew <laughs> Code Red set off a long grinding connect the dots for the police that you can hear all about on episode 133 or read about in the affidavit of this which i'll put on our website also on april 22nd in late afternoon the new hampshire attorney general's office issued a press release confirming that Stephen and deswendy reed were the victims of a double homicide and people were again asked to contact police with any information the police got some very relevant witness statements, it says in the affidavit. Ooh, very and it's relevant. funny because nothing in this affidavit is redacted. There's one thing much later that is that's <laughs> pointless. But so there's names of these people, their dates of birth, in some cases, people's email addresses and stuff, which wow. I think is very weird. I did an article for my friend Carol's news outlet, Manchester Ink Link, when this affidavit came out. And I didn't use the names because her news outlets in new hampshire and it's just too local but for this i'm going to use the names the vermont affidavit had almost all of the information in this about the one big witness the woman who was walking her dogs who was passed by wendy and steve near the parking lot then later her gunshots and a few minutes a few minutes later on the trail came upon a guy but i will go over that a little even though we talked about it in the last episode the only details the vermont affidavit left out were her name Nan Nutt. <laughs> so the police, N-U-T-T? N-U-T-T. So the police began to call the guy she'd seen Nan's suspect. To refresh your memory a little, and because the Vermont guy did leave out some little bits of detail, Nan, 75 at the time, was still under the power lines where the trail begins near the parking lot when she was passed by a couple, a white man and a black woman. They were walking faster than she was, so she moved her dogs off the trail to let them pass. She said they were appropriately dressed for hiking, were relaxed, and chatting with each other. They showed no signs of any distress. They seemed happy and um, enjoyed each other's company. They entered the woods on Marsh Loop Trail a short distance ahead of her. Nan said as she entered the woods about five to ten minutes later and my guess is she's not precise because her dogs were probably sniffing around and doing their stuff and taking their time like dogs do she heard gunshots that she said sounded like a handgun rather than a rifle mm. i personally would not know the difference i know i was gonna say i wouldn't know they sounded very close and she and her dogs were startled and she was initially reluctant to continue the hike but ultimately continued down the trail a few minutes later she saw up ahead a young man looking off the trail to the right which the affidavit said is consistent with where the reeds were found later. A couple days later, Nan said the guy stood on the trail, looked back and forth from her to the woods and back. She continued to walk toward him, 
and he started to walk toward her in the direction of the parking lot. He passed her without saying anything. She probably feels lucky she's alive. I would think. After they passed a minute or so, she turned to look back at him and found that he was turning to look back at her. Nan said that she turned around to continue walking and never saw him after that. She also didn't see, or as the affidavit says, she advised that she didn't see (laughs) any firearms or related objects to explain the shot she heard and also didn't see anything out of the ordinary where he was looking into the trees. But she wasn't really looking. She was nervous about him and looking at him. She gave a very detailed account of the guy, which, again, you can either read in the affidavit when I put online or listen to on episode 133. From her account and her phone coordinates, the police came up with this timeline. On Monday, April 18th at 2.48, the reeds passed around the trail, and they entered the woods at 2.50. She entered the woods at 2.54, and that's when she heard the shots. Mm. She got to the spot on the trail where they later found evidence the reeds had been shot at 2.59. Investigators surmised that that gave the killer five minutes to kill the reeds and move their bodies. So the guy she encountered was likely the killer because that was such a small window of time and he's the only person she saw. And by the way, remember how we wondered what kind of dog she had? Yes. Like you'd be more likely to keep walking if you had German shepherds rather than like corgis or something when you heard the gunshots and stuff to keep well, the affidavit doesn't say what kind of... Oh, I thought you were going to tell me. I know. I'm sorry. I tricked you. Uh. A guy named Alan Schwartz, 77, also told police he heard five gunshots while he was at the end of his hike on Marshall Trail on April 18th around the same time. And this would have been like at the other end of the trail, not where found where she was. He said he also saw four shell casings on the trail. Hmm. He showed investigators where he saw the shell casings but they couldn't find any there when they looked. And this was April 22nd or 23rd, even using ballistic sniffing dogs and metal detectors. It's possible he wasn't remembering where he saw them or it's possible Clegg picked them up. As I said, it was another section of the trail, which is why Nan didn't come across this guy. But as we learned in the previous episode, and we'll talk about a little later, police later found a lot of shell casings all over the place that were consistent with the gun that killed the reed. So somebody was doing a lot of shooting around there. Hmm. Besides Nan and Allen, the New Hampshire affidavit gives details about five other people who, in the weeks and months before the reeds were shot, encountered a man who stood out as being unusual and in some instances made them nervous and appeared to live in the broken ground trail woods. Hmm. Rosie Kane, 50, said that on multiple occasions she saw a guy who matched the sketch because police had done a sketch after they talked to Nan and released it. She saw a guy walking from Portsmouth Street, which is how you get up to the trails, up the Marsh Loop Trail under the power lines. She first saw him in late fall 2021 and last saw him about two weeks before the reeds were killed. She said he was always on foot and often entering the trails just as it was getting dark, which she thought was odd. She thought maybe he was homeless, but he also appeared clean and didn't seem homeless, so she wasn't sure. He stood out. She said he was always wearing dark-colored clothing, that she never saw any firearms, suspicious items, or vehicles associated with him. Hmm. She said that one time, she said hi as he passed, as we do here in northern New England. And you can always tell when people are from away because they either ignore you or look scared. And that's (laughs) that's me saying that, not her. But anyway, she said hi, but he stared straight ahead without making eye contact or replying to her. Hmm. 
Tamara Hatcher, 58. And it's funny how all these people are like over 50. And yeah, I know. Point, I was thinking know? that. Tamara Hatcher, 58, said she twice saw a clean shaven white male, approximately 25 to 35 years old, on the Broken Ground Trail, who seemed out of place and was underdressed for the weather. Hmm. The first time was a very cold day during the winter. He was only wearing jeans and a jean jacket and was hunched hmm. over like he was freezing and it made her nervous. Which tells me she didn't go to our high school because that was the standard winter year <laughs> for about half of the boys okay. in our high school. Anyway, she said hi, and he nodded and walked past her without looking at her. The second time was in March near Curtisville Road, which is in the north section of the trail area. She was walking her dog when she heard a noise and realized there was a guy ahead of her on the trail, and it was the same guy she had seen that cold day. She decided to turn around and go the other way rather than pass him in the woods alone. And that's something I myself would have done and have done. Because yeah, he had made her nervous. There was yeah. something about him that made her nervous. Yeah. Gift of fear. I was going to say gift of fear. Trust your gut. Right. She said he looked kind of like the guy in the sketch, but maybe his hair was different. She couldn't tell. Cindy Pulkinen, 63, also saw a guy resembling the guy in the sketch twice, both in March. The first time he was carrying an Amazon package into the woods, which she thought was weird, but figured he was probably homeless. She said he was oh. yelling to himself and appeared agitated. Ooh. Cindy asked him how he was doing, and he said, oh, great, in an annoyed tone of voice. <laughs> <laughs> the second time, he was walking on the trail near the back of Cranmore Ridge, which is a residential road near the Marsh Loop Trail. She said he was carrying two plastic shopping bags and was screaming to himself. When he saw her, he stopped screaming, and I'm not sure what she means by screaming. No, I was like yelling like, at himself and screaming at himself. Yeah, I don't know. When he saw her, he stopped and stared at the ground to avoid eye contact. She theorized that the male had mental health issues and mm. was, quote, possibly schizophrenic, unquote, mm. which oh, is well. just a diagnosis. Glad she's diagnosing you. someone she's never yeah, met. Or... Right. I think it's. Not so much what she says to police is what they choose to put in the air. I know. But you also, know? what if he just had like a Bluetooth thing on his ear and yeah. he's yelling oh, at somebody? Right. Or was singing. Like nowadays, if I'm walking down the street and somebody's walking near me that's talking and they're by themselves, I always assume they're on and the phone. It's always some <laughs> And sometimes it's a homeless person who's, or right. someone that's mentally with, with ill. With the Bluetooth. Somebody has, yeah, you never right. know. A 14-year-old boy riding his bike on Marsh Loop Trail in March saw a guy he thought was quote-unquote sketchy. Mm. He was carrying a plastic grocery bag either from Shaw's or Market Basket. The boy hesitated before passing him, but then passed him oh. with no incident happening. He said the guy was not only sketchy, but looked like the guy in the composite sketch. And these were all people that saw the sketch after. Right. These were all people that yeah. came to the police after the sketch oh, okay. was published in the paper. And that, that was the sketch that was the profiles? From Nan Nutt. Yeah. Okay. Right. And it was just a profile and it was. Yes. Yeah. Um, Did they ever explain? No. Okay. They never explained why they only showed a profile. Wilson Townsend, 59, said on the afternoon of April 12th, six days before the Reeds were killed, he saw a man who matched the sketch on a trail leading from Cranmore Ridge toward the Broken Ground Trails. He, as with many of the others who saw him, said the man had a black backpack. Wilson also said the guy had black business casual shoes and his clothing didn't fit right. And also that he had a, quote, high forehead, unquote, and he looked like a, quote, city person, not a homeless person. Wilson said hi, but the guy didn't respond. 
Did Wilson, uh, was he like behind a fence with just the top half of his? Yeah, Wilson. No, I was thinking of the volley. Wilson. Uh, the volleyball. <laughs> Linda Letourneau, 65, had one of the most interesting sightings. Ooh. She said she was at the trails on April 14th, four days before the reeds were killed, and she first saw the guy who resembled the sketch staring at Beaver Pond while she was driving down Curtisville Road to go to the trail parking area. This is a northern parking area. It's not the same one that Nan Nutt was at a few days later. Linda was on her way to grab a dog waste bag that she'd accidentally Hmm. left behind. What kind of dog was she? It doesn't say. She left the dog waste bag behind, not the dog. I know, but obviously she had a dog if she had a waste. It doesn't say, let me just say this right now. This affidavit does not give any breeds or names of any of the dogs mentioned. But anyway, good for Linda. She gets the Good Citizen Award for going back to get her dog poop. But wait, there's more. Okay. She said the man deliberately avoided looking at her as she passed. Mm. And if you're saying what? She was in a car. How would she know? If you look at the map of the trail system, which I will put on our website. Oh, yes. The road actually merges with the trail at the north end of the pond. I'm guessing it's a dirt road. And if you're driving up to that northern parking lot, you're basically on the trail when you're driving and the pond comes right up to the trail. So she would have been right going right by him. She said that after she passed him, he started walking toward the parking lot in the same direction she was driving. Mm -hmm. After she got her dog poop and was preparing to leave, she realized he was standing right behind her car. Uh, She managed to get out somehow without driving him over. His unusual actions, as the affidavit calls them, made her so nervous that she called the Concord Police Department after she left the parking lot. Hmm. Sure enough, when she told them this story, the investigators checked their call logs, and at 5.10 p.m. that day, and again, this was four days before the reeds were shot, it showed she called and reported and described the man and, quote, expressed concern that the man was acting weird, that there were children walking towards (laughs) the area. The police report said the guy was gone by the time, quote, officers were later able to respond. And yeah, I'm sure they gave it a wicked high priority. I I know know. they can't respond to every suspicious person incident. And I know that they did a lot of good police work to come up with the arrests that they did. But there were also, as you see, a lot of missed opportunities. And the other thing is the state prisons in Concord. So, yeah, it could be somebody that escaped or something i know never know i know although they would know if somebody had escaped maybe the affidavit notes that although none of the people who saw this guy took photos or video there were many commonalities in description and behavior leading us to believe that they were referring to the same person whom we suspected was living at an unknown location in the woods of the Broken Ground Trails. They also pointed out that the shopping bags were significant, the people who said they saw him with shopping bags, because Nan Nutt had seen him (laughs) with a shopping bag, but when they released his description, they didn't release that part publicly. Mm. And also the cops who talked to Arthur Kelly saw a shopping bag. Now we return to the burnt tent site issue. burnt. I know, that drives me crazy. And as I said earlier, this was very confusing to us in our other episode with a lot of unanswered questions. Maybe the most confusing part of the entire saga. And I blame the guy who wrote the Vermont affidavit for jumbling it up and leaving out important information. Rather than try to fill in the holes, I'm going to tell what happened. So some of it may be redundant. 
Stephen Hatcher, 60, who I wonder was related to Tamara Hatcher, 58, one of the people who saw the weird guy in the woods. Oh, yeah. But Stephen Hatcher lives in the area and frequently walks the trails and told police that in early January 2022, he first spotted a tent in a secluded area near the power lines about a third of a mile from where the crime scene later would be. He reported it to Concord police that day as a possible homeless camp, and supposedly two officers went to look for it, but they couldn't find it. So that tells me you can't just camp anywhere. You asked earlier, can you just camp anywhere? Yeah. It, that tells me you can't. Although I do see tents all over the place. Well, I know. As I was going to say, you you can't, but it's a low priority for police. Yes, exactly. And Stephen Hatcher described it as having a camouflage pattern tarp over it. So maybe uh, they could have <laughs> camouflage. Uh, Hatcher began looking for the tent every time he went down the trail. He had no problem seeing it. He always saw <laughs> it, but he never saw a person with it. He saw it regularly on his walks from January into April. On April 15th, three days before the murders, from another vantage point, he saw what looked like a second tent in the same area. He again reported it to Concord Police, and Patrol Officer Brian Craig and another officer went to the site to check it out. And this is where we had a lot of the confusion last time. Yes. The two cops found a tent with its flap padlocked, like that's going to keep anyone out of it who wants your stuff and a pair of boots outside by the front flap the site was very clean and well kept they looked around for another tent but they couldn't find one hatcher wasn't there when the cops checked out the tent site the next time he was in the woods april 22nd both tents were gone he seems to be in the woods a lot well he lives near there and likes to go for walks on april 26 hatcher accompanied two detectives to the location of the first tent there were a dozen or so small propane tanks in a square and burned tent poles in the middle. Ooh. And from the tortured syntax of the affidavit, <laughs> I surmise that they determined the propane tanks have been set up around the perimeter of the inside of the tent. Oh, that And then sense. lit so they would burn the tent down. There were also burned soda cans, pots and pans, heating and cooking equipment, and other detritus within the tent's footprints. The cops took photos but left it alone. And so I think what happened is he put everything inside the tent, put the propane cans around and lit the whole thing up. Wouldn't the propane cans explode? I don't know. They don't apparently know didn't. They burned. This affidavit, just like the Vermont one, says this site will be referred to here and after as the burnt tent <laughs> site. <laughs> the burnt with a T. With a T, tent site. Hatcher, the guy, the hiker who is not a cop, said he thought the tent and propane takes were burned before the homicides, which initially led the cops to think it wasn't related to the investigation. Mm -hmm. Because obviously, if some 60-year-old guy is speculating that they were burned before, oh, okay, then, then it <laughs> occurred to somebody to ask the cops who checked the site out on April 15th what they had seen, mm. and they realized that the tent wasn't burned then, and that it was only three days before the murders, so maybe it wasn't burned before the murders. Ah. Another hiker, Alisco Medina, 39, told the cops that on April 20th, two days after the reeds were killed, but before their bodies were found, he was hiking on the trails and wandered into the woods to pee. Mm. He came upon a pile of small propane tanks, which appeared to have been very recently burned. He also saw fire damage to a tree above the tanks, high up above his head. 
and said it seemed like the fire damage was only a day or two old. And you can usually tell, like, when something's been recently burned, like, even if it's cold, you can still smell yeah. it and stuff. And yeah. he took pictures, which he shared with the police. Oh, how nice. And this is the affidavit. The picture showed a site that Detective Brown recognized as the burnt tent site. Then the affidavit goes on to say, as our suspicions increased on <laughs> July 9th, 2022, Detectives Stephen Carter, Brendan Ryder, Garrett Lemoyne, and Wade Brown responded back to the burnt tent site for possible evidence recovery. To which I say, yes, their suspicions increase, but it's a good thing there are no like Earth Day freaks or someone out there cleaning up the woods because this is what four months. No, I know. After. I'm surprised all the stuff's still. I mean, there. I know a police investigation is complicated, but what the fuck? And if I, I were know. a defense attorney, that would be my opening to say, well, anything you found there, it's been sitting there for months. Anybody could have done anything no with shit. it. Quote, wearing gloves, we located, separated, and tallied various fire-damaged items, unquote. Mm. These comprised 155 small propane tanks. And I think they're the little, those little tiny. That's still um, a lot. He was there all fucking winter. They picked up 155 small propane tanks, 47 soda cans, both Mountain Dew and Coca-Cola, tent, tarp, and sleeping bag remnants, three apparent pots, and I think they say apparent because I think they were melted a little from the fire, parts of heating and cooking equipment, remnants from plastic shopping bags, Walmart, Target, and Hannaford, two socks, a t-shirt, 10 coins that turned out to be euros, silverware small knife blades and more quote they also observed remnants of food packaging cans glass jars mugs and apparent glass droppers initially thought to be smoking devices they observed a label for regular straight leg pants in the size 30 by 30 oh he was little he was a skinny little guy he still is and remember that pants labeled that comes up later in subsequent weeks they went back to the site and got more of the stuff there and again how are they still going back there (laughs) you know weeks they're back there in august in august they borrowed a metal detector from the fish and game department that was better at finding ballistics so they were able to find shell casings you may not remember but in episode 133 it's like it just said they found shell casings in august and we're like they've gone over the site and they're finding shell casings but it, it turned out he had done quite a bit of target practicing and stuff and so that special metal detector helped them find that stuff. Police determined that that site was used by somebody who left it between April 15th and April 20th. And it was likely the fellow that they were now calling Mountain Dew Man. The affidavit also goes into a lot of detail about how they followed the Mountain Dew Trail to Logan Clegg. But you'll have to listen to the episode. And also, Mountain as I said, Dew Trail. I'll put the affidavit online because it's very long and complicated and we already went over it. And the Vermont affidavit didn't leave much out on that. But as I said, I'll put this one online too. It's a great lesson in how tiny details and meticulous work can lead to a suspect. As we discussed in that episode, it's the difference between crimes getting solved and not. Yeah. One guy says... Boy, he had a lot of Mountain Dew, code red, and I'm going to look into that and try to create a link where a lot of people might have totally discounted that or not thought about that at all. 
a lot of times people working at the stores will notice things too. Like if there's someone that comes in every day and buys their Mountain Dew Code Red, the people at the store, you know, if you went and asked somebody right and that like, wasn't oh, yeah the, there was some guy that, that was wasn't always the ca- buying that and that yeah. wasn't the case in this yeah but it, they had to go through right. months and months and months of video surveillance from walmart hannaford shaw's and target again that's more detailed in the other episode yeah. some of the things in the affidavit that weren't in the other ones that clegg liked besides mountain dew code red were coke as i said pork yes. chops ground mm. beef chicken mac and cheese and blue bunny ice cream wow yeah apparently they don't mention any fruit or vegetables so no wonder he was so miserable he was probably constipated most of the time it's on a high protein diet ice cream has protein all that stuff has protein but you need fruit and vegetables on friday april 15th he bought a 12 pack of green mountain dew as well as a rotisserie chicken from Hanford. Mm, Those rotisserie chickens are good. I like those. I get those all the time. The hot ones, and then I come home and eat the legs first. But the most important purchase he made was on April 19th, 2022, the day after the murders, when he was seen on Walmart video buying a new tent, a sleeping Uh bag, a sleeping bag, and a bottle of 91% rubbing alcohol. He paid for these things with $100 bills at the self-serve register. Smart. Quote, well, not smart enough. Quote, I am aware based on my training and experience, and I think they have to say based on my training and experience in affidavits because they always say Yes, that. they do always say, they yes, say yes. That yes. rubbing alcohol could be used to clean blood or bodily fluids from certain surfaces and can also be used as an accelerant or fuel. Detective Danica Gorham wrote in the affidavit. It's quite the um, handy. Useful, handy, right. She said she strongly suspected that his other tent and sleeping bag had been abandoned or destroyed, possibly to destroy trace evidence after the homicides. Now, a reminder that at this point, they still don't know his name. They got all this information from combing for hours and days and weeks through store surveillance. As far as they knew, he was still Mountain Dew Man. It was lucky for him he always basically wore the same thing. And he always wore a blue bandana as a face mask because this was still during the face mask time. So that helped out, but they had no idea this guy's name. The affidavit points out that when he bought the tent and the other stuff on April 19th, it was the first time he appeared on surveillance video without the blue bandana he'd been wearing as a face mask. And I think it was like August or September by the time they found this on video. Danica Gorham, the detective, says that could indicate the bandana had obvious blood or evidentiary material on it. Mountain Mm. Dew Man, or MDM, as he's (laughs) in the affidavit, did appear to cover his face with his hands when walking past certain obvious surveillance cameras or otherwise looked down, but he didn't shield himself enough. Quote, we isolated a few still images indicating MDM's face and noted that he was clean shaven and generally resembled the suspect sketch, though his hair appeared shorter. We further noted that this transaction occurred one day before Lemoyne and De Silvia encountered Arthur Kelly in a tent in the woods of the Alton Woods complex. We considered that MDM set up his new tent at Alton Woods after the destruction of his former site, physically distancing himself from the crime Mm. scene, but remaining close enough to check on it and continue efforts to obscure it, unquote. Lemoyne, the cop who talked to Arthur Kelly April 20th and noticed the Mountain Dew Code Red, said that the tent Mountain Dew Man bought April 19th looked like the one he saw him in. Hmm. Even though they looked 
they could find no surveillance footage from any of the stores of Mountain Dew Man after April 20th. Once they had the photo of Mountain Dew Man, the still photo from the surveillance without his mask, they had something to show people. The police distributed the photos to New England law enforcement agencies and also walked it around town to the Homeless Resource Center, laundromats, gyms, banks, libraries. Some people thought he looked familiar, but nobody could really identify him or give any details. Meanwhile, Detective Danica Gorham was trying to figure out who the guy was, and through some meticulous work involving vanilla gift cards, debit cards, email addresses, etc., etc., that's all detailed in the other episode, That so I won't repeat it all here because it's another lengthy involved thing, they finally came up with a name. Logan Clegg. This was in September. So that's how long it took them to connect all those dots. After that, they were able to quickly dig up his Utah crime history, which again, I go into extensively in episode 133. So won't repeat here. Though there is this tidbit. Clegg reported in his probation paperwork in Utah that both of his parents were deceased and that he had no other family members. We know his father died by suicide in 2008. But Conquer Police online search turned up his mother, 11 aunts and uncles, and 12 cousins, all living in Western states. Hmm. The affidavit points out that while they all have active social media pages, there are no photos or mentions of Logan Clegg indicating that he's estranged from his family. So in September, with the photo in hand, Conquer Police gumshoot around to fast food restaurants on Loudoun Road, to try to figure out where he worked. They figured he was getting money from somewhere and he seemed to be on foot. So he worked somewhere nearby. And as we discussed in the last episode, fast food restaurants are not picky about who they hire. We know he worked at the McDonald's on Loudon Road from November 19th, 2021 until February 6th, 2022, when he told the people there he was leaving for another job. What the Vermont affidavit left out is that co-workers told investigators that Clegg had anger issues Mm. and told some of them he was leaving because of his co-workers' poor work quality. They said he was a loner who kept to himself and was Mm. easily annoyed by others. He was was protective of his backpack and wouldn't let anyone go near his belongings and got pissed off if anyone touched any of his stuff. Quote, they recalled that Logan became agitated if someone got in his way that he would mutter to himself and or yell at the manager, the affidavit says. <laughs> I've worked with that guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can kind of understand some of his. Yeah. Two co-workers told police Clegg would slam his hand on surfaces to express his dissatisfaction when things went wrong. Mm-hmm. Without knowing when they were questioned that Clegg was considered a suspect in the homicides, Co-workers said they wouldn't be surprised if Logan turned out to be a serial killer or a school shooter. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but, but we've all you speculated know, if, about right, co-workers if you think that, that way. He'd put his address for his applications as 506 South Main Street in Concord on the digital application, but 206 South Main Street on the paper one. There is no 506 South Main Street, but there's a rooming house at 206 at the time of the affidavit, they were still trying to determine if he'd ever stayed or lived there. Flash forward to October 12, 2022 in Burlington, Vermont, where the investigation led. As detectives Lemoyne and Doyen watched Clegg at the Price Chopper grocery store in Mm. Burlington, Vermont, as they waited for a chance to arrest him, the Burlington police had to get warrants together. They were going to arrest him on the Utah fugitive charge. 
But they had tracked him down. They had to get warrants together. So they, Lemoyne and Doyen and a bunch of other Concord cops had raced up from Concord to Burlington, a couple hours, three hour drive, and were there watching him. Logan hugged several people and some were heard to say that they'd miss him and probably would never see him again. So he'd obviously worked there and that was his last day of work. As you remember, police had found out that he had a plane ticket the next day from New York to Germany for October 13th. Yeah. That's just weird that he was hugging his co-worker, or they were hugging him. Well, maybe they were hugging him against his will. You know how that that (laughs) After he left that touching scene, he went into the Walgreens next door, and police believe he cashed a check. It looks like he also bought some gift cards. He then walked to the South Burlington Public Library with Lemoyne and Doyen following. He went up and sat at a desk on the second floor, opened his laptop, and put on some headphones. At 1.10 p.m., he was arrested by Burlington police on the Utah fugitive warrant. And we have video of that on our website from from episode 133, if you want to see that. A few hours later, Concord detectives Wade Brown and Danica Gorham got to talk to Clegg at the South Burlington police station. As I said, the entire Concord police department apparently went to Burlington. According to the affidavit, Clegg was read his Miranda warnings, Miranda warnings, That's what they called him. Clegg was read his Miranda rights and signed the card, waiving them and agreeing to speak with the cops. And again, I want to say, whether you're innocent or guilty, if you are being questioned by police at a police station, get a lawyer. Yes. And as you'll see, maybe Clegg thought by just denying most of the stuff, he wasn't causing any harm. But the problem is you don't know what evidence they have. And if you deny stuff that shows you're lying, there goes your fucking case. It bites you in the butt later. But, you know, like I've said, there should automatically be a lawyer. There there. should automatically. And I hate it when police say, oh, he lawyered up. So there wasn't anything else we can do. And the thing is, somebody can still talk to you can still talk to the police but they should talk to them like they do in the uk and other places with a lawyer there but anyway logan clegg waived his right and did not get a lawyer that's what he gets they asked him if he wanted something to eat or drink or to go to the bathroom and he said no Hmm. the affidavit includes a summary of the conversation quote-unquote brown had with clegg or at least the concord pd's version of it the affidavit says this is a summary it kind of like, or, you know, and I assume this was recorded, this discussion with him. Brown told Clegg he was investigating a double murder on April 18th in Concord, New Hampshire, and asked Clegg if he was in Concord around then. Uh. Clegg said he did not believe that he was, that mm. he left earlier, possibly in February or March, when there was still snow on the ground. Brown asked where Clegg stayed in Concord, and Clegg said he slept in the open under the power lines next to Shaw's on Loudon Road. Brown pinned down the site that he was talking about. Now, Shaw's is across Loudon Road from the Alton Woods complex. And there's not woods per se. There are wooded areas. Like, you could probably pitch a tent in that nobody would notice. But it's built up. There's a Home Depot. It's right next to the old Steeplegate Mall and Mm -hmm. stuff. So, the affidavit points out it should be noted that Clegg described staying in an area south of Loudon Road, while Arthur Kelly's tent... And the burnt tent site were found on the north side of Loudon Road, up past. Ooh, he was so clever. Yes. Clegg said he used tarps as a shelter, but didn't own or use a tent while he was in Concord. Brown asked him if he ever stayed in the wooded area across from Shaw's near the Alton Woods apartment complex. And Clegg said he did not. 
Brown asked him if he ever stayed in the woods at the Broken Ground Trail system and then described it to make sure Clegg knew where he was talking about, and Clegg said he had not. Mm -hmm. Clegg did confirm he worked at McDonald's in Concord and left in February. He said he had no family or friends in New Hampshire, that he didn't get another job after leaving McDonald's, that he spent his time in New Hampshire either at work or at his campsite. He said he survived by buying hot food from supermarkets, specifically mm -hmm. Hannaford and Shaw's. Mm -hmm. Brown asked if he ever shopped at the Concord Walmart, and Clegg said no. He didn't go there because it was too far from where he stayed, and they didn't have hot food. Brown said that a man matching Clegg's description was seen frequently shopping at Walmart, buying food and propane tanks. Clegg said that he may have shopped there a couple times, but he didn't shop there regularly. Brown said that same man bought tents there in November and April, and the one in April was the day after the killings. The guy didn't wear a mask, and he looked a lot like Logan <laughs> Clegg. Clegg said he didn't know what Brown wanted him to say, but it wasn't him. Brown brought up the burnt tent site and asked Clegg if he'd ever lived there. Clegg said he never lived there and didn't know anything about a burnt tent. <laughs> Brown and he asked, said it's not burnt, it's burned. Burned, right. Brown asked Clegg where he washed his clothes. Clegg said he didn't wash his clothes, that he cut his own hair with scissors and dry shaved every few days because he didn't like facial hair. Brown asked him where else he shopped, and Clegg said Amazon and eBay. Brown asked how he paid, and Clegg said he had a debit card, but it hadn't worked after he left Concord, so he got rid of it. Brown hmm. asked where he picked up his purchases, and Clegg said he had them sent to general delivery at the Concord post office. Brown asked how he accessed Amazon and eBay, and Clegg said he used his phone, that he didn't have cell service, but used the Wi-Fi at McDonald's. What? I just think the fact that he didn't wash his clothes, I was I still know. stuck on that. Yeah. Brown he says... Brown said the Walmart shopper used cash and prepaid gift cards, and the gift cards were also used to buy vitamins online and were sent to a FedEx delivery spot at Walgreens in the name of Logan Clegg. Clegg said mm -hmm. he never bought vitamins online. Yeah, right. Brown said the person used the email address rxkelly at gmail.com, the same one used on Clegg's McDonald's application. And it's funny, so this is the only place in that entire 25-page affidavit they redacted that email address. But yet they had it like a dozen times earlier when they were describing their whole tracking. <laughs> they have the names. They have other people's names. Like they have Stephen Reed's email address and all this stuff. That's um, so weird. I think that they just weren't paying attention to redacting. And maybe this part was added later at the end. And somebody says, oh, you better redact that email. Oh, I know. That's so weird, though. But anyway, Clegg said he didn't recall using that email mm, address. Yeah. And I just think it's weird. Like, I know he was taking on the name Arthur Kelly and who knows why. But R.X. Kelly, all I can think of is R. Kelly. I know, me too. I and I wonder if that. he did that on purpose for a reason. Anyway, Clegg said he didn't recall using that email address. He also denied he was Arthur Kelly or he was in the tent on April 20th in the interaction with detectives Lemoyne and DeSilvia. Oh, come on. Brown asked him if he had any involvement with killing Wendy and Stephen Reed. Clegg said no. Brown asked him if he had a gun when he was in Concord. Clegg said no. Mm -hmm. Clegg did admit to taking a bus to Boston, then to Burlington, Vermont which police had determined he did, but not in May, as Brown said someone did. Brown then asked if Clegg could guess whose name the bus ticket was in. <laughs> Quote, Logan then guessed Arthur and appeared to mumble the word Kelly, the oh. affidavit said. Brown told him that was correct. Clegg said that wasn't him. 
The affidavit then says Logan ultimately advised Detective Brown that he was done <laughs> that he was done talking and the interview was ended. The cops offered him food, drinks, bathroom, and again he said no. Brown told Clegg they were getting a search warrant for his clothes and other property and asked if he had other clothes he could wear. Clegg said he had no other clothes. Hmm. Brown then offered to buy Logan new clothes to replace what he was wearing and watch out for the trick, Logan. Clegg then told him his pant size was 30 by 30. Uh And this is funny because it's after he said he didn't want to talk to the cops anymore and they're not supposed to talk at all. Yeah. But yet they're having this conversation. He also told them his shirt size was small and his socks were 13. The affidavit says, Detective Brown later recalled that a clothing label was documented at the burnt tent site, which was for size 30 by 30, consistent with Logan's pant size, unquote. And I'm like, gosh, how fortuitous that they had asked him for his clothing sizes just because they were going to nicely go buy him some clothes to wear because no jails have fucking orange prison jumpsuits to put guys in instead of their clothes you know (laughs) they were obviously trying to trick him into giving them information i know no matter how they couch it and if i hope his defense lawyer is paying attention not that yeah you know my opinion about his guilt or innocence notwithstanding that kind of bullshit and also he had said he didn't want to talk anymore although he didn't say he wanted a lawyer so maybe unless he did and they just didn't put in this detectives brendan Ryder and stephen carter bought new pants underwear shirt and socks for clay nice brown gave him the new clothes and told him to put his old ones in a paper bag the bag with clegg's pants socks underwear and shirt was put into a temporary evidence locker with his other property after the interview, Brown and Detective Danica Gorham pawed through Clegg's other stuff. They pawed? No, they didn't. They looked at it <laughs> because they did not have a warrant, so they the affidavit makes clear they did not touch it. They just, quote-unquote, observed it. Oh, yeah, sure. This included a black baseball hat, black boots, a black belt, and a black backpack. None of these items were touched or searched. So, like I said, they didn't paw through. They observed. The detectives observed the black backpack appeared to be the same one as Clegg had on the day of the Reed's murder, as seen on the store surveillance footage. I didn't go into it in this one. Within half an hour before they were killed, he was leaving the Walmart with his bag of Mountain Dew, and it showed clearly his backpack. I think there's some kind of white logo on the back that was distinctive or something. Um, And also Nan um, Knott had noticed the same thing. The police found his Burlington tent site by pinging the track phone he had a number for. And also the manager at Price Chopper, where Logan Clegg worked, told them that after work, he'd walk across the street into the woods. And there was this like big nature preserve owned by the University of Vermont. At the site, they found an Ozark trail tent, camouflage tarp, several Mountain Dew bottles, and trash piles that included prepared food packaging similar to the type of food they found in Concord. The tent was the same make and model that he bought on April 19th at the Concord Walmart. Mm -hmm. By now, of course, they'd gotten their warrants. In his backpack, they found a loaded Glock 17 handgun, Mm. including one bullet in the chamber ready to shoot, with the same kind of ammo found at the burnt tent site. They also found a passport with Clegg's name, as well as a fake Romanian passport, and we talked about this in the other episode, for Claude Zemo. They found a wallet with $7,150, several Mm. gift cards, two boxes of ammo, packages addressed to Arthur Kelly, including the one the fake passport came in. He bought ammo from a place in Iowa, 
through the mail. It was addressed to Arthur Kelly. And it turns out that he had to buy the ammo in Iowa because the gun shop in Barry, Vermont, where he bought the gun on February 12, 2022, was only allowed to sell like two magazines of ammo for that type of gun or something by Vermont state law. And too bad the gun shop owner didn't also follow the law that if the ID is a fake, as shown by him putting the name because he used no his fake shit. Arthur Kelly license. And when the police tried to do it, it said not on file. When you do that, you are not supposed to sell the person the gun. And he did anyway. So it's funny. He only sent him the amount of ammo he was allowed to. But the fact that Logan Clegg had a fake ID to buy the gun that probably shot yeah. Steve and Wendy Reed, the guy just sold to him. Oh, well. That's Logan Clegg, the rest of the story for now. And I hope that illuminated some of the... Yes, it did. It's sad. It's very, very sad for Steve and Wendy Reed, who are awesome people and for their families and stuff. But it's also sad for him. He sounds like a sad person. And we'll never know, I don't think, what was going on with his trips to Europe, if you listen to the last episode. And where, even though he had no overhead as far as living goes, where his money might have been coming from. I just wonder about him shooting them, if he targeted them. They walk there a lot, so he'd probably seen them before. I wonder if he had some kind of interaction with them. Not, I'm not blaming know. them No, no, I know. One thing I was thinking of is he had started started living in the woods in November, late November. And while there were obviously people walking around through the winter, there weren't a lot of, a lot of people don't go walking around in the woods in Northern New England in the winter. You need snowshoes and stuff, except for that one guy, Stephen Hatcher. It was probably pretty quiet, but it was April. More and more people were going out. It was probably making him more agitated. He bought that gun for some reason He had a, uh, you probably don't remember this from the last one, but he had a plane ticket to Iceland in February, February 12th. But instead of going to Iceland, he took the Greyhound bus to Barry, Vermont and bought a gun. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yes, I remember. And you don't buy a gun. Like, how was he going to get, he wasn't going to get that gun on the plane in New York the next day. He had a loaded gun. He was leaving from JFK airport the next day. You can't bring that gun on a plane. He had no luggage but his backpack. He had nowhere to quote unquote hide it, not that you can. So what was he going to do with a loaded gun and two boxes of ammo in the next 24 hours? I wonder. Weird. One thing that pisses me off too is that guy that sold him the gun. Like, is there any recourse? I haven't Does he found, have to pay a fine? I, I, I looked mean, on, he probably has to pay a fine. I looked online and couldn't find anything. But, and this is why gun laws matter. And yeah. there was a law, and the guy ignored it. Yeah, his kid who sh- who was a felon, so he shouldn't have had yes. a gun, was allowed to buy a gun with a. That's why there's that law. Yeah, that, it, that you can't use a fake ID because they have to be able to look up who you are and no whether shit. you're red flag. And as we talked about in the last episode in Utah, even though he stole guns and shot <laughs> yeah. a gun. They didn't bring gun charges against him and didn't know that he had a gun. Like he was caught shoplifting at Walmart with a gun. I know. Where is the accountability? I know. And and then people like Steve and Wendy Reed get shot and people want to blame the guy. And yes, the guy is the one who did the shooting. But there are a lot of people over the past few years who dropped the ball. Yeah. He was just allowed to to keep doing shit. Yeah. And even, like, I know the Conquer police have more important things to do than roust 
people out of tents in the woods, but people don't live in the woods in the winter in a tent in friggin' New Hampshire for no reason. If they're mentally ill and homeless and stuff or whatever, they need to be somewhere safer than that. Yeah. But if they're living there for some other reason, if they had just searched his fucking stuff, they would have found the gun. I know. You know, but they didn't seem to care. Like, when you think about it, that woman who called the police on April 14th because she thought he was suspicious, I'm sure they totally blew that off. Oh, yeah. And maybe they did end up going there later. But, like, the gift of fear says your instincts are telling you what your instincts are. You're noticing things you don't realize you notice. And this guy seemed dangerous. And the thing, too, is... Nobody was connecting any dots. Like, nobody was talking to each other. There's a tent. There's a weird guy. Somebody called the police. That one guy, Stephen Hatcher, called the police twice about the tent. They didn't seem very compelled to do anything about it. And the thing is, it's not a large city with a bunch of different precincts and a high rate of crime. So it's not like... You know, there's two different precincts and the, and like there's things happening that they're not aware of. They're all being filtered through the same. And it's right. Not- and one thing, too, that I still question, because this affidavit didn't make any clearer, when they found the bodies, that cop who on April 15th, just a few days before, had gone to the tent site, apparently never went to the, to the cops investigating the murders and said, hey, there's tent site there's someone living here it was that stephen hatcher guy who told the cops about it and then they went back and said to the patrol officer brian craig did you go look at this tent site on april 15th these people were shot in the woods there's a guy living in the woods i know you know i know i mean it's easy to second guess them we said we gave him credit for for that detail for for the amount of detail it took they're different people you know right Doing different stuff. And who knows, maybe he would have found a different way to kill people. Like he stabbed that guy in Spokane that people are going to have to listen to the other episode to hear about if they didn't. But the bottom line is if that gun shop guy in Vermont hadn't sold him a gun when he wasn't supposed to, when his ID came up as fake, then Steve and Wendy Reed would probably be alive. We speculated on why he went all the way to Barry, Vermont, you know, at two and a half hours on a Greyhound bus, and then he had to get from Montpelier to Barry, which was seven miles away, he probably hitchhiked or something. And my guess is he looked up online somewhere, some site that helps you find gun shops that help you buy a gun if you can't legally buy one. I think he did a search to see what was an easy place to get a gun. Because there are certain, there are certainly a lot of places in New Hampshire. And and you can, people you can chat with online that'll give you that information. But again, innocent till proven guilty, I would guess maybe i'm totally wrong about this and we'll find out if that trial happens in july it just sounds like they have a pretty good case against him and uh, that's why his attorney wanted that affidavit sealed (laughs) yeah and i don't blame her i think it just seems to me they really crossed every t and dotted every i and it's a miracle they narrowed down on him like a day before he was about to leave the country. Well, I'm surprised he hadn't left before that. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm surprised he hung around. Maybe there was some reason. I know because if did. he had taken off right away, they probably maybe never he would was have waiting him. for his Claude Zemo passport or whatever. Yeah, you know? and but... I still wonder, and we'll never know, but I still wonder about that loaded gun and what he was going to do with it in the next yeah. 24 hours because he couldn't get on a plane with it. Yeah. But anyway, do you have an well, NNW? Yeah, I yeah. do. Okay. <laughs> This is going to be a little bit different because it's not a crime-related one. We can do whatever we want. Unless you think the monarchy is a crime. Which yes, it is. It is, it is a, a crime. They're the richest welfare recipients in the world. As Johnny Rotten says, they're parasites. So They are. Yeah. I just want to preface this by saying I am not royal watcher. I don't have any love for the royal family i don't dislike them as people but i think the whole monarchy i have a lot of problems with Mm -hmm. the whole idea of it yeah and i don't think it's necessary in this day and age and i think that they should get rid of it right well i don't live in england and all of our british people yes we did we fought a revolution to get over there are a lot of people here in america and i think you're saying you're not one of them and i certainly am not who get every people magazine and fawn and drool all over the royalty and say, why yes. can't we have princes and princesses yes. and kings and queens here in America? At the same time, I am not one of these people who puts a lot of stake in my feelings about Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. I'm not rabid one way or the other about it. I did watch that interview with Oprah, and I think they were telling the truth. I have no problem believing that they're they're a racist. Ooh, they're a racist. In the royal family, whether it's overt racism or not. I'd be shocked if they're Hannapin racism. Well, even if there's not racism, there's classism. Right. And that racism goes right along with that. But I like... Boy, this is the biggest disclaimer I've ever heard before in NNW. And... I'm just explaining. Oh, I know, yeah. I like memoirs and, and autobiographies, especially on my Audible app. I like to listen to them, especially when the person themselves is reading it. Like mm, yeah. uh, Mary Trump, I would highly recommend hers. I listened to even Paulina Portskova's, which was pretty good. Demi Moore. I've, and uh, what's his name from Friends? Matthew Perry. Yeah. Which actually did not make me, it made me like him a lot less listening to that. Yeah. Although I think he thought it was flattering to himself. Didn't you recently, before you get into your thing here, have an insight about the difference between memoirs by women, famous women, and memoirs by famous men and the tone of them? The men are always kind of bragging about themselves. And the women were more introspective yes and talked I've, more about issues with their lives and overcoming things i mean you get more details from the women right. about just, other things it's just like anything else like when your husband or boyfriend is like oh i just talked to so-and-so on yeah today it's like well oh, what minutes. did they say yeah oh, oh I don't nothing know. yeah yeah well what's going on with her you know their whatever oh right. i don't the, know yeah, they, I, I didn't really say. The men seem to talk more about themselves, about their what they did and blah, blah, blah. And the women tend to talk about everything that's going on around whatever them, they're right. going through. Yeah. So, and the, the men, oh, and Bob Odenkirk, I, I listened to his. Yeah, they like tend Bob to brag. They're too braggy right. about themselves. Right. But anyway, but, after all this, so I decided when Prince Harry's came out, uh, I like to hear the I heard that it was scandalous, but what I wanted to know is how honest. I wanted to hear an honest account. 
I think it's very honest. So I'm going to go through it and then I've got some things to say. Okay. I'm going to go through our negative Nellies. Okay. So bad reenactment said that doesn't apply. Narrative cliches, no. And you do find narrative cliches sometimes in in autobiographies and memoirs. And I will say it was ghostwritten by some some guy. (laughs) Pamela Anderson supposedly isn't, so we'll see. I don't think Bob Odenkirk's was either. And there are different levels of ghostwriting. This writer, I looked him up and I can't remember what else he's written. I think it was well written. You'll see if you listen to it. I I like the writing. Racial gender obtuseness. No, he has, if you paid attention, has had issues with things the Nazi. in the past. He yeah. wore that Nazi uniform to Halloween. Yeah. He's very ashamed of it now. Yeah. And he also recognizes that he was obtuse about it and he's entitled the way he grew up was entitled the other thing that happened which i had forgotten about but he brought it up he did not gloss over anything so i will Mm. give him credit for that is when he said about one of his army friends my packy friend which is a derogatory you don't hear it as much here in the united states i would say no there isn't there's the opposite he's really trying to and i'll say being in a relationship with somebody who is different than you I was married to someone who's Jewish and had a child with somebody who's Jewish. I didn't think I was anti-Semitic before I met them, but you don't even realize until you see it through the eyes of somebody who is going through it. And it's not like it made me Jewish and I was being, people were being anti-Semitic, but it just opens your eyes a lot when someone you love is going or has gone through things and tells you things and i know that sounds like really karenish of me or stupid but it's not that i wasn't aware of anti-semitism it just gives you more of a perspective and i think him seeing his wife well i also think with him too is that he lived in this very very protected bubble And being with her and being out in the world has opened his eyes. Yes, it has, definitely. Lack of good visuals... I'm taking half a point off because it's an audiobook and there's no, there are no pictures. Yeah, I hate and that. And I would take a full point off, but I also am including because it's an audiobook. How would they provide pictures to you audio-wise? I don't know. They could have links or something. Yeah, they could. We were talking about that. I mean, Just, you can Google it, but it's yeah, different. It's not I did same. Google. I Google a lot of people while I'm listening. But they like should. The I was saying mentions. that the other day. The audio books that come from other books, when the hard copy book has photos they should provide you a link with the audio book because we were just talking about this because i'm reading an actual hard copy true crime book that has pictures and maps and i'm like i like to keep going back and looking at them with the audio book there should be a link so that you luckily can he is an extremely famous person so and there's there, lots of photos and, right? the, and the people he mentions in the book it's easy to look up like one of his bodyguards he talks about i looked that guy up he was on there uh missing pieces no i think it's very thorough i i don't know how long it must be at least about a 400 page, if not, it's a longer memoir, or if you call it autobiography, I don't know which. Inaccuracies and anachronisms, no. It's his perspective. So I'm sure there are people who read it. Supposedly, none of the royal family has read it, which bullshit. is bullshit. Their aides well, have read, read it. It's been summarized for them, I've read, but give me a break as if you wouldn't read it. So I'm saying no to that, although I'm sure people would argue. Storytelling, I'm taking half a point off because 
I know being in the military was very, very important part of his life. And I think part of the reason for it was he was treated as his own when he was with his military mate. They treated him like a regular guy. Yes, at least as far as he felt. He felt he was treated like a regular person. He was able to do a job that he was either praised for or made mistakes or whatever. A lot of people didn't know who he was because he was on the radio and dealing with people and they use code names and stuff. And I think that was very important to him. But at the same time, he's claims too much detail on military stuff that I couldn't, I didn't Ugh. really care about. Ugh. But since I was listening to it while I was at work and stuff, it was fine. But mm. it was just like, okay, you know, ugh. right. I do appreciate right. how important it was to him. Right. And it was very sad after he left the Royal mm. right. family. He was not allowed to wear his military uniform. He had to be punished. Because it should be take issue with that. Because right. I think that's separate. separate. I can see, yeah, you can't wear your princey costume or whatever right. he has. Right. But his military uniform, he served in the military. Right. He shouldn't be stripped of that. Freshness. I think it's fresh. He was not as braggy as the other male ones I've read recently. I thought he was pretty honest. I didn't find anything where I was rolling my eyes like I am with some of the others. Repetition, no. It was a kind of a linear story. I feel bad because I think for storytelling, he doesn't remember a lot about his mother. And I think that makes him sag. He was 12 when she died. Beating the drum, I'm taking away a point, even though I understand his reasoning. I understand his perspective. I mean, he hates the press. He's always talking about what parasites they are and how horrible they are. And I can understand how he feels that way because, first of all, the way his mother died. If you don't know this story, you can Google Princess Diana. (laughs) Although I saw a four-part documentary that where it wasn't, the paparazzi wasn't chasing her after all. I mean, they were chasing her, but that's not what caused. But anyway, go on. Yes, but that's his perspective. And also just the fact that you can't walk down the street with a bunch of people yelling at you. And it's not just taking pictures. The British press, they're awful. And they also make shit up. They do. They do make, like on that Diana documentary, the guy even admitted they made stuff up. Oh, and I meant to say, because I think the episode, last episode or whatever, where I mentioned that, and I said that's different from the American press, when I meant that, I wasn't talking about like Fox News. Yeah, that uh, is American press. I'm talking about legitimate journalism like, in America. Yes. We don't make stuff up. And so I gave it an eight. I highly recommend it. If you listen to Audible, he's very honest. The things he tells do not strike me as him making them up. People made a big deal, which to me, a lot of this stuff wasn't a big deal. Like Prince William shoving him and. You know, knocking him down on the dog bowl. Imagine our brothers. if Brothers do shit like that's normal. Mm. William came across as someone with a stick up his ass. Right. And same with his wife. But I would be surprised if he didn't because he knows he's going to be king. And that's the way he was raised. And I'm not saying that he should be that way. But I'm just saying that if you are raised, Harry wasn't really because he every time someone's born, he's farther away from the throne and he doesn't give a shit. Right. But the person that's the oldest son... Yes, he has a shit instilled in him from the time he's a little boy. You got to act like this. You got to do this. You're going to be king one day, blah, blah, blah. And then his wife comes into the picture and she's going to be queen one day and she's into it. But he doesn't go on a lot about what Megan went through because I think he feels like it's her story to tell. He does 
tell enough that first of all i believe that she was treated like shit oh yeah people say oh she was demanding and all this that's bullshit she was probably asked people stuff to do stuff and they didn't want to because why is this american black woman ordering me around the the royal family isn't ordering people around that's always the criticism of women that they're demanding or hard to deal with or whatever and also especially the upper classes in britain are almost passive aggressive in the way they speak with each other and their behavior and yes, stuff. Yes. And I think the directness of Americans bothers them. Yes. And, and her directness did bother people. So there was one incident where Kate got very angry, wouldn't speak to her or something. And finally what came out was it was because I think it was when Kate was pregnant, maybe. And there was something happened. She had, she forgot something or something. And Megan said something like, oh, that must be your hormones, you know, like pregnancy brain or something. And Kate's like, you don't know me well enough to talk to me about my hormones. How dare you? Here in America, a stranger could say a that. A stranger you, would you? say that. And you'd yeah. be like, yeah. I feel like Harry, he's not heavy handed about it, but either he or the person writing it or both of them are able to get across how it felt to grow up that way and then to realize that he wasn't cut out to be in that way. For those of us like me, when the whole thing where, when they were talking about the royal exit or whatever, I was like, who gives a shit? He wants to live his life. Why is it such a, what does, he doesn't owe them anything. Right. Fuck them. But people over there, it's just like, and those of you from from the United Kingdom that are listening, I'm sorry if I don't understand it. And I'm sure there's some people who live there. There are people. The fact that their taxes are paying to line the pockets of these rich people. But, and he has a very nice voice. I always thought he was cute, a little boy. I mean, we're old enough, we watched him grow up. Poor little boy walking in that funeral procession. I know. I'll always think of him as as that. But I never had strong feelings one way or the other, except I did have strong feelings about generally how, like, somebody was talking about their documentary on netflix which i might watch that they seemed entitled or whatever and i don't have any strong feelings about megan personally what type of person well, they are entitled they're well in general <laughs> regardless of whether she's a nice person or not she was treated she everything i every time i see an article online mm. about well you've been talking it, about it for years fucking how, racist how shit. racist right it is. You, from the minute she there. started dating him People you know? calling her a, from the hood. And, right. And some of the headlines, too. One of them said, Harry's new girlfriend straight out of Compton. And, and someone called her a, either a monkey or, a, you know, stuff like yeah, I've that. Seen those, yeah. And those are British. You know, they like right. to think that they're not racist like the United States. And people say it's because she's American and it's like, but the shit I read isn't, no. isn't because she's American. No, it's, it's she's not. Black. Like I said, he doesn't go into it as much as, you know, because it's not his... I'm more of a fan of his now that I read it, which is funny because the other ones I've read, a lot of them I'm less of a fan. The men right. ones. Well, that's good. I know Prince Harry probably listens, so hi. Yeah, I'm sure he listens. And also, he's in America now, so he can do and say what he wants and be himself. And the only thing he can't be is president because he has to be born here. But other than that, the, but the world is his oyster. You don't re- I mean, you do, you know it. But it, that seems like a cliche to say, oh, the poor little rich boy. But honestly, their life is fucked up. I mean, all yeah. of them. Yeah. They grow up 
isolated from people well we should probably go now yes in our next episode if the logistics work out right will be a special visit from liz yes and if not i have an idea for my next one that given to me by my daughter oh good so yay okay well i guess we should go is there anything else we need to say i don't think so all right okay. so we should thank you everybody bye okay, bye Oh, Khabibi. Hi, Khabibi. Here, let me take a take a screen. I keep taking these screenshots and then I never do anything with them, but I should put it on. You want to be on the show, honey? Okay. You're on mute. She went right and tried oh, to attack me. Poor kitty. Okay. Do you want to go out, honey? Oh, no. Listen. I don't think it's so much what she oh, wants. Okay. Don't. I'm back. Okay, I don't think it's so much what she wants. I think it's... Okay. Anyway. But she ran under the bed and I can't get her, so... Okay. Are you... What are you doing? Nothing. I was just moving stuff. Oh, okay.